Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This event is part of the Cyber Intelligence Initiative series sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. And without further ado, I will hand it over to Professor Aaron Dianis, who will introduce our speaker. Thanks, Hannah. Um, first off, I want to thank Dean Lane, the head of our um, IWP Cyber Intelligence Initiative, uh, for letting us do this under uh, kind of his umbrella as part of the uh, Cyber Initiative, uh, Cyber Intelligence Initiative speaker series. Uh, so thanks, Dean. I know you're out there watching. Um, I want to introduce our guest speaker for tonight, Adam Mariyama. Um, he has 15 years of national security experience working in counterterrorism and cyber operations for the U.S. government. He has firsthand experience from the tactical to the strategic level, both in the intelligence and policy communities. Um, I know him from his former U.S. government time, leading CT and cyber policy efforts while we worked together at the National Counterterrorism Center a few years back. Um, currently, he works for Expanse, which is a cybersecurity firm, which serves both government and um, non-government clients to minimize risk profile from internet attack. And uh, he's also a graduate of Georgetown's um, School of Foreign Studies uh, with a degree in culture and politics, of all things. Maybe you can talk about that and how you got into cyber a little bit after, Adam. Um, and just as a, a matter of... Um, administrative announcement. I am here um, as a professor of um, Institute of World Politics, even though I work for the U.S. government in my day job, nothing I, that I say or assert here should be um, construed as implying U.S. government authentication or endorsement on my part. So with that, Adam, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about cyber authorities and conventional authorities in the cyber world. So it's all yours, Adam. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, also like to thank IWP for inviting me to speak on this important topic that's never been more timely. Um, mirroring Aaron's uh, perfunctory reminder, uh, my comments this evening are also my own perspective and don't represent uh, the U.S. government or expanse unless I, I'm specifically citing U.S. government policy. Uh, so I'd like to frame tonight's discussion of cyber operations policy in the context of three stories that have come into the public eye over the past couple of years. Uh, the first is the cyber tools attributed to NSA that were leaked by shadow brokers in 2017. Uh, as many of you know, these tools, uh, particularly uh, one of them, uh, were weaponized by criminal hackers to great effect in the WannaCry and related ransomware attacks. Uh, the second uh, item I'd like to highlight is Cybercom's 2018 Operation Glowing Symphony, which were, was detailed in uh, some detail in documents obtained under FOIA. Um, this was a military operation to degrade ISIS's uh, propaganda network and provide some 
additional support to the ongoing kinetic operations in Syria and Iraq. Uh, the final anecdote that I'll look at tonight is the reports that CIA has expanded uh, covert cyber authorities uh, to include offensive cyber authorities against a number of hostile nation states, uh, including infrastructure that has traditionally been off limits from offensive operations there. And the common themes across these three stories are going to be uh, conflicts in authorities and transparency of those authorities uh, that we see in cyber operations as compared to their real world corollaries. Uh, to begin, we see NSA's tools that were likely developed for foreign intelligence gathering under Title 50, which governs the operations of the intelligence community and prioritizing intelligence collection as part of the SIGINT mission. Uh, combined later on in Glowing Symphony with Cybercom's own use of very similar authorities and similar tools, presumably, um, to create disruptive effects under military uh, authorities against ISIS. And finally, CIA's expanded uh, covert action cyber operations, which are conducted under presidential auspices, uh, to have effects against foreign governments and targets that we normally see as intelligence targets rather than uh, the targets of offensive actions. Uh, throughout these stories, you'll see aggressive, uh, increasing agility and aggressiveness of U.S. actions in cyberspace. Uh, and we'll also note that the application of these authorities in the cyber domain raises some unique concerns uh, that I think must be addressed as we look at the future of cyber operations going forward. So to start with NSA's traditional conduct of cyber espionage uh, under Title 50 authorities, we see an operation here where we have a multifaceted tool set that raises the stakes for operations far above what's traditionally uh, been taken in espionage. So although NSA was using these tools to the best of our knowledge for legitimate foreign intelligence purposes, uh, the key capabilities that many of their tools rely on, especially Eternal Blue, which was again, the subject of much press scrutiny, especially after the WannaCry uh, leaks, exploited, um, gave attackers the ability to execute arbitrary code. And what that means here is that attackers could do pretty much anything on the target system with this exploit. Anywhere from espionage to ransomware, which would delete files, as we saw in WannaCry, or enable crypto mining uh, under the coin miner and wanna mine uh, exploits. Compromise of this exploit aside, arbitrary code execution is a broad capability that if discovered by a victim, could raise serious questions about the attacker's intentions. Um, for example, when we look back even further than Eternal Blue to the Stuxnet operation, um, we saw a, an example where the exact same administrative remote code execution capabilities were used to have a tangible kinetic effect rather than just conducting espionage. Uh, so if we look at this in an analogy, 
with traditional espionage and inhumant. Uh, if an operative inhuman is caught, traditionally, they would have some sort of toolkit or mission uh, mission kit that would correspond to what they're trying to do. Um, in this case, you have an operative who is armed with everything from a camera and lockpicks to explosives. That's the breadth of some of these exploits that we see. And if we're not clear with our policies and red lines, uh, this could have significant ramifications, obviously, on foreign actors' interpretation of our intentions. Now, I'm not saying here that any of this was intentional, that the U.S. was trying to send any kind of mixed signals or had ulterior motives uh, for putting implants enabled by Eternal Blue on computers in an adversary network. In fact, the most difficult to detect types of cyber tools like kernel and boot level rootkits require high levels of privileges like the ones that Eternal Blue had to install and operate. This, however, leaves intelligence operatives and policymakers in a quandary. They can either use read-only tools that are easily discovered or more deeply concealed tools that have this broad array of capabilities. Now, in the world of spycraft, the, the choice between being discovered and not being discovered is not at all difficult. Um, we will always err on the side of not being discovered. But I want you to keep in mind the breadth of this toolkit and the potential ramifications of discovery as we look at operations that unleash the true potential of some of these tools and in doing so raise significant questions on policy and international law. The first thing that we'll look at here is US Cybercom's conduct of Operation Glowing Symphony, which was a, an operation designed to have military effects, um, but raised some diplomatic and international coordination challenges uh, far beyond those imagined in either traditional military cooperation or uh, cyber operations cooperation in the espionage world. Uh, as you know, these operations were taken under military authorities granted in the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force against Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. Uh, that's a Title 10 authorization, uh, military operations and support to military operations, which was originally conceived uh, to conduct these operations in an ever-broadening war zone uh, that started in Afghanistan, expanded to Syria and Iraq. In uh, the case of Operation Glowing Symphony, however, we see in U.S. Cybercom's own hot wash again, which came out of the FOIA requests, that they were trying to expand into a much larger battlefield that uh, included countries that were not traditionally thought of as countries in the global war on terror. And this is where uh, diplomatic and military to military coordination raised a significant snag here. Uh, they raised non-concurs in the interagency coordination process because they were targeting cyber endpoints in third countries uh, that were akin in some ways, I think, to the extraordinary renditions undertaken by CIA in the early days of the global war on terror and have similar, I think, long-term impacts on diplomatic relationships and norms of in, uh, espionage and warfare. 
So you may say at this point, this is a little bit of an exaggeration. One is talking about just deleting or just altering content, whereas the CIA's program was actually kidnapping individuals from uh, friendly countries, most notably Italy. But the alternative I'll propose here, or the analogy I'll propose here, is to turn the tables on us. So if a close ally, say the UK or France, uh, was pretty sure that an AWS farm in Herndon was hosting terrorist content, uh, I think it would be a significant concern to the US if the UK or France just hacked into that US server instead of liaising with US intelligence services or the Federal Bureau of Investigation to take that content down through lawful means. Um, which is to say, if not properly coordinated, these type of operations could cause, uh, at the very least, headaches for law enforcement um, and potentially significant impacts on commercial cyber investigators who may spend significant time investigating the hacks and if they are successful in their investigations could jeopardize uh, US sources and methods in taking down those tools. Uh, in a very worst case scenario, uh, if the US botched an attempt to alter or delete media en masse on a server, uh, they could also impact other data that's resident in the same cloud instance. So on the same physical equipment, but not belonging to ISIS or their cutouts, uh, causing significant collateral damage in an area that the AUMF never countenanced. So uh, we weren't, I don't think Congress was countenancing collateral damage in France, for example, in the terms of financial or data loss when it authorized the AUMF. Now, while the conduct of espionage, whose goal is to gather intelligence, is overlooked as part of longstanding gentlemen's agreements, uh, both in cyber and in uh, the physical domain, the conduct of cyber warfare, uh, wherein there's potential deletion or alteration of data in third parties is less certain. So there is no international law consensus on where this line is drawn, where we go from espionage, just looking at files and covered by this sort of gentleman's agreement to altering files. Um, but the closest that we have to consensus, the Talon Manual 2.0, uh, which was a gathering of cyber policy and diplomatic experts in Tallinn several years ago, does acknowledge the difference between exfiltration of data, which it considers not a violation of sovereignty, and deletion or modification of data, which it does consider a violation of sovereignty. The thing that I should mention here is that the Tallinn Manual, again, is not law and was designed by the conveners to be a starting point in international discussions. But I think it is uh, very, pertinent to mention at this time that the one document where diplomatic and legal scholars got together to consider this question uh, considers what OGS did a violation of country sovereignties. And these are countries whose sovereignty I do not believe that Congress intended should be violated in the conduct of the global war on terror. And now we see these um, particular concerns getting even more heightened with the recent news that CIA 
received broader authorities to conduct covert action in cyberspace. Of course, many details of these findings remain classified, but I believe that what we know of them so far uh, sets a dangerous precedent for cyber operations at large. Uh, as you all may know, covert action is defined in the National Security Act as activities that are intended to influence conditions abroad in which the hand of the U.S. government is not apparent. Uh, while covert action espionage are similar in their aims to keep activities secret, the fact that this covert action is intended to influence world events has always uh, meant that the president and the NSC have set the desired end states for covert action via presidential findings and received strict congressional oversight on those findings. Uh, while not all of the details of the presidential finding authorizing this broader CIA covert action have come to light, there are a few key details that I'd like to highlight as potentially concerning. Um, as reported, the cyber finding gives CIA broad latitude in choosing targets and methods for cyber covert action against, at a very minimum, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Uh, I think that this latitude may provide CIA with the agility that U.S. Cybercom described as lacking in its conduct operation Glowing Symphony, since covert action is not uh, subject to the same international coordination standards as a military operation. It also seems that it would circumvent the same interagency process uh, that happened in OGS that would allow other agencies to surface concerns about specific operations impact on the other instruments of national power at stake. Second, the finding seems to give the CIA even more discretion in disrupting or even damaging critical infrastructure in these nations. Now, it's difficult to judge what the full implication of these increase in discretion would be without further detail. Uh, Bobby Chesney at UT Austin noted that these authorities may simply be allowing prepositioning of capabilities or a revision of the circumstances in which capabilities to disrupt critical infrastructure may be used. However, I propose that the failure of policymakers to give a little bit more transparency around those details is a danger unto itself. Because their continued silence uh, on what those restrictions may or may not be has the potential to weaken established international norms against the disruption of civilian critical infrastructure abroad. Uh, one example here would be uh, power, the power grid and potential uh, impact on things like hospitals. Uh, without the U.S. government saying, uh, bar none, that we will not disrupt civilian power grids unless there is a kinetic war going on, uh, prepositioning of these capabilities could send mixed signals if these tools are discovered. Um, and that is the last thing that we need in a potentially escalatory cyber environment. Uh, the final thing that I'll note about this finding is that it report reportedly lessens evidentiary requirements for conducting cyber operations against entities like media organizations, charities, and religious institutions that are believed to be agents of a foreign power. Uh, on its face, this seems to be a, an erosion of protections against these organizations. Uh, we've normally set a very high bar around operations against these organizations because they roughly correspond to things uh, that our diplomatic norms protect, our democratic norms protect, 
that were enshrined in FDR's Four Freedoms uh, speech. Now, without further clarification, again, implications like this may cause our allies to question our continued commitment to protecting these freedoms and erode the international norms around protecting uh, those freedoms and those organizations from interference uh, via intelligence operations. To sum up, uh, across these three case studies, I, I think we can see three key trends. First of all, um, an increase in the breadth of technical capabilities that the US government is willing to use in conducting cyber operations, both espionage and offensive operations. Second, an increase in the agility with which the US government is willing to authorize those operations. And finally, an increase in the secrecy with which the US government is providing guidance even at a policy level on cyber operations. Now, the combination of these three trends in my mind sets a troubling precedent for authorities and operations in the cyber domain where norms are already immature and international laws are practically non-existent. Um, our policymakers seem to have increased the pace and breadth of operations in the cyber domain while still relying on frameworks that are very much tied to the physical domain, such as the AUMF and the general covert action process, which again, countenanced more physical operations than uh, virtual operations when it was designed. Uh, I think in doing so, what we risk is a an escalation in cyber tensions uh, writ large, because again, all of this does not translate one-to-one between the physical and the cyber domain. At the same time, I am not arguing uh, that we can ignore the fact that our adversaries are also escalating the scale and pace of their cyber operations. I think for us to be successful, and I have to commend uh, General Nakasone and Director Krebs uh, during the elections for actually taking a meaningful step forward here, but we need to lift the shroud of secrecy around some of the frameworks that govern cyber operations in the US government in the interests of global cybersecurity. And this doesn't mean giving away our sources and methods or revealing the details around specific operations. It's not about giving our adversaries advanced warning that we're about to attack parts of their infrastructure. It means answering a set of questions around how and why the US government intends to use cyber as an uh, instrument of national power. For example, how does the US government view international sovereignty in the cyber domain? Do extraterritorial authorities such as the AUMF apply to content hosted anywhere in the world or just in the countries where those uh, organizations are physically active? Second, what types of cyber operations does the US government consider a use of force? Do those need to result in actual physical damage or is damage to data enough to consider a use of force or at least a violation of sovereignty? And finally, what are the US government's bounds with regard to freedom of speech and content in cyberspace? What propaganda will we forcefully act against and what types of organizations will we act against versus encouraging platform owners and host nations to take action on their own accord uh, against these types of information. Now, the answers to these questions are far outside the bounds of tonight's talk. Um, I, I would invite greater minds in ethics, in law, in diplomacy, 
to chime in on those discussions. And I don't believe there is a right answer. The simple act of answering those questions in a clear, consistent, and transparent way, however, matters. Because those answers are what will be the bedrock of American leadership in developing norms and international law in the cyber domain to build accountability and agility at the same time. Without those answers, the US risks being painted as an unpredictable and dangerous actor in the cyber domain and continuing an escalatory cycle that could turn our greatest enabler of knowledge, the internet, into our greatest vector for unrestrained warfare, warfare that could shape not only information operations and the information environment, uh, but also at the same time, shape things uh, like power grids, having real damage to civilian casual, uh, civilian populations. Now, I'd be remiss at this point not to talk a little bit more about the environment around the recent elections, which is actually a step in the right direction that is, I think, largely inconsistent with the narrative that we've seen so far. By all accounts, we had a very secure election from a cyber perspective. Um, U.S. Cybercom seems to have been uh, diligent in executing its defend forward strategy in concert with messaging from agencies across the U.S. government uh, that interference in our elections would not be tolerated. Um, I would argue, however, that the security that we had around the elections was more a product of the transparency and consistency of the US government's message here than it was around any agility or freedom of action that was granted to CyberCon. Uh, many of you may have seen the video on YouTube in the days leading up to the election where General Nakasone, along with directors Ray Krebs and Evanina of FBI, CISA, and NCSC, emphasized a commitment to election security and the willingness to use all instruments of national power to secure that election. Um, this establishment of clear lines around the elections, emphasized time and time again by General Nakasone, who said that we are equal opportunity disruptors against any country who threatens the election, and the decisive action against those who did, which has been unconfirmed by Cybercom, but widely reported in the press, is an example of policy working. And when I say policy working here, I mean that we have set clear policy goals we have set clear messaging around that, and we have executed the consequences that were prescribed in those policies consistently. Now, this is a broad contrast to some of the vagaries that I outlined earlier and the places that I believe we're taking risk, um, particularly the use of technically multifaceted tools in an ambiguous environment and the alleged breadth of the operations that uh, and authorities that CIA may or may not be conducting uh, under covert action authorities. So I hope that this example of election cybersecurity, where we again had a clear cybersecurity related policy objective and leveraged both offensive and defensive instruments of national power to project a transparent policy goal and use cyber action accordingly, serves as an example for cyber operations going forward rather than the uh, very opaque dialogue that we've seen so far, to be frank, across a couple of administrations um, with regard to cyber norms, transparency, and sovereignty. Um, so that is a hopeful note 
uh, for what I think other was an otherwise bleak talk, and I was uh, happy to be able to give it. Um, it, it, so it was bleak, Adam. No, it was. It's fine. It's, uh, it's what we're dealing with in the real world right now. Some people would argue we've been at cyber war with some of our, um, you know, current adversaries for years now. Um, just nobody can see what's going on. It's all behind the scenes. Um, we had one question here, which I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to wrap it. Um, we've got a, several questions. I think four of them kind of go together in a bundle. I'll wrap this first one with another bundle about these authorities. Just the case studies you cite um, talking about primarily non-state actors like ISIS when you talk about Ocloing Symphony. Do there need to be different authorities for the non-state versus state actors? Are we pl- talking about a different playing field? Um, one of the questions that came in, you know, talking about, I guess, non-state actors, would a better analogy be um, doing cyber operations being, you know, analogous to the to drone strikes against terrorists and DOD does them routinely. They announce them. Uh, they even have to keep track of how many casualties, collateral casualties they cause. And I, I think if you link it to documents, you look at the national cyber strategy from September of 2018 where there is no mention of offensive operations in there. It's all protecting the homeland, protecting um, the infrastructure and so forth. And then you look at the the national CT strategy the next month, which you're very familiar with. They actually talk about using offensive cyber tools against terrorists. It seems like there's two different different vectors that we're operating on here. Yeah, Aaron, I think that's that's a really good point. Um, I'll, I'll talk about the analogy first. And I think... You know, this is where analogies in the physical world deteriorate pretty quickly. Um, If you look at the drone strikes analogy, um, I think there is no world in which um, the U.S. government would authorize a drone strike in France. Um, And yet that's exactly what we're doing. We're going into friendly countries and using an instrument of military force, again, this is a Title 10 AUMF operation um, when debatably a coordinated operation with law enforcement and intelligence in those countries could serve the same end. And uh, to, to talking about the documents and strategy, that's also exactly what we need to do. We need to be able to outline clearly what those lines are. And, um, you know, I think we We've talked in the cyber, uh, in the CT strategy, rather, about what we're going to do, but we also need the broader authorities framework to be drawn about why we're doing it and how we're going to protect, for example, co-located data on those servers that has nothing to do with ISIS propaganda. Okay, great, thanks. Um, kind of summarizing these other ones, we're going to kind of riff off this kind of strategy policy issue here. Um, about you know where does all of this coordination take place? Who should be responsible for it? Because as you know, we have a number of actors in the U.S. government. It's almost it's almost as parallel to the old intel community where you have stovepipes, right? You have Cybercom and DoD over here. You have you have um, CISA over at the Department of Homeland Security. You have um, the agency. You have FBI, all operating within their authorities. Um, where is the integration taking place? Um, how is it being integrated with um, other policies, non-cyber policies? How is that all supposed to work at this point? 
Do you have any sense? It's a small question. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Thanks for the softball, Aaron. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's interesting because you, you talk about hot glowing symphony. And if you look at the press reports based on the um, FOIA declassified opera, um, documents that came out of the National Security Archive, um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, interagency coordination dragging on for a long time, in some cases months, just to deal with ISIS, a non-state actor. So um, clearly there was interagency coordination going on, but it wasn't in a rapid process. I think this is, this is a, um, I think that the, the analogy here is the, the policy process that we go through for any operation. But I think the, the catch here is that our agency's leaders are still trying to wrap their heads around these fundamental questions that I outlined around cyberspace and sovereignty, right? The degree to which you need to coordinate, for example, with a host nation, which is, again, in that press reporting, those FOIA documents, one of the key holdups for upglowing symphony um, is something that is an unsettled question. And going round and round that unsettled question of law will lead to months and months of interagency uh, fussing and what I keep coming back to, and I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record here, is we need clear policy answers to those questions. We need uh, clarity. I saw in one of these questions about the role of Congress and the executive. We need an executive policy that is subject to um, the broad oversight of Congress and, frankly, the American public um, and, and the world stage to define these concepts to define the United States American view of it, because that's the way that, to me, we take leadership in this dialogue instead of simply trying to assert our authorities and leave the world stage to read the tea leaves of what we're doing to figure out uh, what our opinion is. Because I think, frankly, if you look at the track record of cyber operations that we have taken across the past two administrations, um, there is no clear answer to that question. Uh, I, I don't know how I would read those tea leaves to say what is the, what are the U.S. government's red lines on uh, sovereignty and cyberspace. I, I don't think there is a consistent approach. Uh, going back, you brought up Congress, as you mentioned, one of the questions deal, dealt with what's Congress's role here. As you know, um, trying to get Congress to pass any kind of law, any kind of act to help um, operate in this space it tends to fall way behind what's actually going on in the real world. Compared to that, executive orders and national security directives out of the NSC seem to move at light speed in relative comparison, even though we know those take a long time too. What is the proper space? Are we going to be operating primarily in the executive branch in this space, you think, going forward, just because of the, the speed that is required to respond to adversary operations? Yeah, I, I think that I think the right answer there, at least in the short term, is um, is executive action with congressional oversight and congressional notification. Um, I do think that as we move forward and and try to enter an era of U.S. leadership and cyber norms, it will be important to get uh, congressional engagement in things like treaties and definitions of international law around these concepts um, and making sure that those are enshrined so that they do not vacillate from administration to administration. 
cyber is not a problem that's going to go away. And the more that we can crystallize norms around it, the more that we can um, have large, largely adopted treaties uh, across friends and enemies alike to make sure that we know where the lanes of the road are, the less, uh, the more we buy down our risk of a catastrophic cyber attack um, that takes down civilian infrastructure that costs, actually costs lives. Um, switching gears here, we had a question come in um, from an anonymous attendee, um, which is perfectly fine, um, about uh, U.S. agencies calling out foreign cyber operations. In other words, the FBI, when they issue indictments against Russian or Chinese cyber actors, or, um, you know, uh, IC discussing, you know, whether or not um, adversaries operations are increasing or decreasing, say, in congressional testimony in broad strokes. Do you get the sense we're doing more of that? Do you think that's effective? Um, is there anything we could do to make it more effective than it currently is? I, I think that we indict hackers um, for the same reasons that adversary nations have, have indicted um, parts of our intelligence community for, for various hacking-related uh, offenses, which is to make a point. Um, those points, I think, are diluted a little bit when we do not have, again, those clear, clear binds, bounds around um, espionage in the same way that we would PNG spies who do potentially uh, egregious things but turn a blind eye to human operatives conducting the normal co course of business, largely. Um, we're doing the same thing in cyberspace. So I think when you see hackers called out in the public domain or when you see uh, high levels of specificity in IC testimony, those are the tea leaves that uh, the community and policymakers would like to be read around what we're doing around cyber, but I would venture to guess there is also a lot of counterintelligence um, and tit-for-tat work that goes on in the background that uh, is not as publicized. And there has been at least some success. A few of these folks have been arrested overseas mm -hmm. on Interpol warrants and so forth and, and brought back to the United States. Not a lot, but a few. I mean, understandably, the chances of getting somebody in the Chinese PLA who's a hacker or a Russian troll farm is probably pretty low. But a number of these folks operate out of Eastern Europe and our allies there have been, it looks like they've been cooperating. At a very minimum, I just like to think that some Russian hacker rolls into the troll, troll farm one morning to work, and his buddies have put the FBI wanted poster up on his on his cubicle to remind him that he got caught. Um, but you know that's that's probably a badge of, of honor for them in some ways too um, that they're wanted by the FBI. Um, I was going to say, Aaron, that that's so. Some of our adversaries want to be caught. They yes. want to know that uh, they want us to know. Um, that they are looking and trying to do bad things to our infrastructure. So I think uh, some of these guys are noisy by design in the same yes. way that we were noisy by design in Glowing Symphony. We said the United States is shutting down ISIS's propaganda. Um, so, so there is also a message to be sent by, by their offensive operations when they do get caught. And we, we shouldn't minimize, uh, I think, the idea that 
any discovery of this hacking is, is simply due to bad OPSEC on the adversary's part. Um, one of the questions, and you mentioned this in your talk a little bit about talking about international norms. Is there anything out there in international bodies? I'm not sure if this is all in your wheelhouse or not at the UN or elsewhere that you think is effective in this space that's, that's being done right now on the international side. All that I've seen, and I have been unplugged from the international uh, diplomatic scene for a little while, but the, the best attempt I've seen is Tallinn 2.0, uh, which was largely Western states. There were U.S. participants in the body as well um, to sort of codify these, these first principles around cyber norms. I do not know of any efforts to codify that into treaty agreements or, or international law that would be actionable in The Hague or, or other bodies. Of course, anything that gets done, um, if you want to point fingers at somebody under some sort of international agreement, the first thing that happens is the whole issue of evidence that um, they are doing something wrong, attribution. Just as in WMD or any other type of nefarious activity, trying to prove somebody's hand is pulling the, the cyber trigger is a very difficult thing to do. Um, have you seen anything in the, inter, in the kind of the international community as far as that goes at all, the attribution issue? Um, I, I have to say, I have, it's not something I normally follow, but I didn't, perhaps you've heard something. It's always difficult. And as um, signatures of uh, various cyber tools proliferate. So Eternal Blue is a great example here. Um, one could imagine that if the if the Russians discovered it before Snowden published it, um, they would have once seen that as a fingerprint of the U.S. government's involvement in something. Uh, but once it was out there, it became uh, a little bit of anybody's game, right? It was no longer an attribution straight back. So I think as uh, probably for some of the tools that we don't even know have been discovered yet, that foreign governments are using, uh, nation state actors like Russia and China primarily, uh, my guess would be, and this is only an informed guess, that there are a few fingerprints that we can definitively attribute back. Um, whether we would want to do that in an international forum is another question. Uh, but I think that just the presence of norms and, and the presence of talking about them and codifying them can have a beneficial effect, even if uh, significant questions like attribution still remain. Um, one of the uh, questions that came in talk about uh, kind of authorities from the economic and industrial perspective. So more from the internal homeland DHS perspective, maybe related to some of the things that, that uh, CISA has over at DHS. Um, anything along those lines uh, to help industry and to help um, you know, internal bodies to the United States that aren't US government? I think um, CISA's been doing a relatively good job here in, in the uh, private-public partnership in helping to share threat intelligence through groups like the ISACs um, and also to uh, through its cyber hygiene program um, across mostly U.S. government agencies, but I believe a few cleared contractors as well has helped to increase that um, private-public partnership. 
I think one of the other things uh, that I would be remiss not to mention is the idea that this public-private partnership on the defensive side of things, I've been talking mostly on the offensive side of things in the body of my talk, but is going to become increasingly important. When, even when we talk about matters of national security, um, such as our defense programs, more and more of that, uh, the deliverables from our contractors will have code either burned into whatever is manufactured, uh, as well as sometimes the deliverable itself will be code or a data set that will uh, fuel code. So having a strong and robust partnership um, and cybersecurity regimes like the CMMC around that algorithmic chain and around private sector cybersecurity writ large uh, is, I think, the wave of the future in some place that the public and private sector uh, need to coordinate efforts and realize too that for many of the small and medium businesses that are uh, the heart of American innovation, cybersecurity ain't cheap. Um, so keeping that in mind and having the U.S. government uh, have at least some of the resources at hand to help improve our cybersecurity writ large as a nation, including that of the private sector is, is going to be important. And uh, of course, um, when we're talking about private sector, we're talking about DHS being the lead for that um, as part of an interagency group. And it is, it is mentioned, all of what you just said is, is, you know, outlined in the national cyber strategy. The key thing with these strategies is implementation, as you well know, that is always the long pole in the tent. It's great to have a piece of paper that says it, but to put resources behind it and to have an implementing body and making sure that somebody is the lead and is being accountable, obviously, is the key piece here. Um, have Do you have any sense for that at all? I know that's a real long, you know, <laughs> long pole question there. I don't know if you have any sense about actual implementation. I think you just mentioned that you thought CISA had done a pretty good job. I know NCSC has been very vocal on the espionage side of the house um, as far as um, trying to do things for the election and so forth. Um, what do you see out there as far as actual implementation? Yeah, I, I think what uh, Director Krebs is doing at CISA is, is, is great work. Um, I know there are also um, efforts efforts in, in the pipe to have some sort of marketplace of cybersecurity products available through DHS to, to help with economies of scale um, for some bulk purchasing capabilities, which, are, which I think is, is a very good step. I'm also uh, encouraged to see that for the most critical and the most acute um, cybersecurity vulnerabilities, we're using both carrots and sticks, right? We have these great bodies at CISA, um, as well as the ISACs to help companies to improve. But as we see things rising to the level of critical concern in cybersecurity, we also see um, the DOD leading the charge um, in partnership with GSA and others to enact rules um, in the DFAR and the FAR executing on cybersecurity related findings 
such as uh, the you know the ban on Kaspersky products, the recent Section 889B uh, in the National Defense Appropriations Act uh, banning certain uh, Chinese manufacturers' hardware from a U.S. government contractor networks, like Huawei, ZTE, Kikvision, and, and a few others that uh, are slipping my mind right now are included in that uh, that law and. I believe the, the rulemaking was completed and is in effect as of uh, a month or two ago. Um, I'm going to take one last audience question, then we're going to finish up with the question I we talked about before we started, which is looking forward into the next administration. But this last one kind of is along the same lines as far as interagency coordination. And, and this is my concern with the cyber field as rapidly as it's grown. And Mike mentioned earlier, of you know, a lot of these agencies are looking very stovepipe and cyber. Is the NSC, do you think, the best place to do this? Or do you think there should be a cyber czar, which I've already seen mentioned in some think tank circles, and we all know how czars go in this town. No money, no resources, no authority, um, you know, go nowhere kind of thing. What do you think is the best way to, to coordinate the, this high-level cyber policy and strategy? Well, Aaron, I think putting a guy with a Russian title in, in charge of cyber would be a hugely, hugely ironic power move. Um, but joking, joking aside, um, I, I think that there needs to be more ground level coordination on cyber operations. So what, uh, what we observe in the government uh, a lot these days is that there are certain cyber-focused entities, uh, NSA and Cybercom among them, parts of CIA, again, mostly in the defense and security side of the house. Um, DHS has CISA, but CISA is a largely defensive body um, rather than looking at potential offensive cyber operations. And um, from there on, cyber becomes another uh, item in people's portfolio at a lot of other agencies. And not having people whose uh, you know nine to five job is talking to others about these cyber operations and coordinating and having these working level discussions on things like norms, on things like how do we come together to make this operational end happen uh, without stepping on anyone's equities is going to lead to traffic snares at the NSC. The NSC is supposed to be a body for executive level coordination where the ground level discussions have happened already. That's why it is uh, probably not ideal for cyber today. But I don't know if the answer there is to dedicate additional resources to these cyber discussions on the part of departments and agencies uh, on the way on the way up, if you will or to create a separate uh, entity for uh, for cyber operations and planning akin to DSOP, which you and I were both a part of at NCTC. Um, I don't know what that looks like in, in a successful execution, but what I will say is that there just needs to be a lot more talking and a lot more specialization at the working level uh, so these snares don't snag things up at the NSC, which is supposed to be a relatively um, smooth process and has not been for cyber operations. Well, it, it, as you know, it's uh, that's hard work at the NSC. People put in long hours 
making policy, the sausage of doing that's very difficult. And uh, the, the fact that we can move the needle at all on policy is miraculous sometimes. Um, so last question, tea leaves, the Biden agency review teams have been announced. Um, there's no particular one for the cyber topic area. There is one for the IC, there's one for DOD and a number of other areas. Have you had a chance to kind of look through and, and check, see the news and see what kind of chit chats out there? What do you expect um, with the next administration coming in in January? Two things. I think that given all of the discussion around cybersecurity specifically, its impact on the last two elections, um, I found it a little bit surprising that there was not a specific cybersecurity group um, that was formed. I think that tells me that while some of these concerns about cyber have no doubt um, penetrated the transition team, they're not they may fall into the same pitfall of trying to weave it into other narratives rather than handling it on its own. And that will, to me, delay the answers to some of the questions that I just raised. Now, the, counter, the counterpoint to that is that uh, now President-elect Biden has made a point of throughout, throughout the campaign, throughout his um, speeches as president-elect so far, talking about restoring U.S. leadership, restoring the U.S. Uh, role in the world. And uh, you know, I think if there is another large-scale cyber event, or even if there is not, this is one of the pressing questions that will uh, hopefully come to light. Um, and I have some hope that as part of that process of restoring the U.S. role in leader, leadership, um, that we'll see the answers to at least some of those questions uh, rising to the surface. So no, but no cybers are right. No commas are. <laughs> that, that's just cyber coordinator. I'm sorry, interagency cyber coordinator. <laughs> we have, there's a, there's enough euphemisms in Washington. We can come up with something for it um, that'll cover it. Adam, I want to thank you um, for coming out tonight. Um, I'd like the audience to note that Adam's the eternal optimist. He obviously has a springtime photo behind him. So maybe we can have you come back um, in the spring when that photo will I think we may have lost Professor Danis. Um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, I would just like to thank Adam for joining us this evening and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. Oh, hey, Hannah, I'm turning it over to you. Oh, thank you. I think we lost you there for a second. <laughs> okay. But um, thank you for such a great discussion. Um, if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you all. Have a great evening.